privilege of being in this place. I pray that uh, as we read and talk about your word, Lord, that we would understand it for what it says, that uh, the clarity of your scripture would be easy for us this evening. And with that, Lord, uh, speak to our hearts the power of your Holy Spirit, that we would know the Word's application to our lives, to us as individuals, Lord. Minister to us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So back in chapter 43, the Lord had reassured Israel that he was with them. And he makes those proclamations about how he is the Lord and makes the statements that there's no other Savior. Closes that out by saying that he's going to do a new thing and then moves into 44 where he says, you know, I'm going to pour my spirit on the people, which is a new and unique thing for you know their understanding of worship. And then he had a long discussion through the prophet with the nation of Israel about idolatry and how you know anyone who makes idols is an abomination and anyone who worships them is worthless. He goes on at length about that and he closes the chapter out in chapter 44, if you'll turn there with me, to verse 21, where um, just to grab the section, really, not dwell on much of the subject. He's going to talk about how Judah will be restored. But remember these, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servants. I have formed you. You are my servant, O Israel. You will not be forgotten by me. I have blotted out like a thick cloud your transgression. So rather than your name being blotted out, as he's spoken of in other locations in the scripture, you know, their name being blotted out from the book of life or their remembrance being blotted out. He, he puts the contrast here by saying, I've not forgotten about you. you know, I, and, and with that, the thing that I've blotted out is your sin and your transgression. Uh, return to me, for I have redeemed you. Uh, sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, you lower parts of the earth. And we made the clarification that heaven is above, and here we are on the lower parts of the earth. Break forth into sinking, you mountains, O forest, and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and glorified himself in Israel. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, and he who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who makes all things, who stretches out the heavens, all alone, who spread abroad the earth by myself, who frustrated the signs of the babblers and drives diviners mad, who turns wise men backwards and makes their knowledge foolishness, who confirms the word of his servants and performs the counsel of his messengers, who says to Jerusalem, you shall be inhabited. A remarkable prophecy, you know, more than... Um, 1900 years outside their homeland and God says, you know, Jerusalem, you're going to be inhabited. And they are uh, to this day to the cities of Judah, you shall be built 
and I will raise up your waste places. Who says to the deep, be dry, and I will dry up your rivers specifically. And he then mentions Cyrus, who says to Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall perform all my pleasure, saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built, and to the temple your foundation shall be laid. This is more than 150 years before Cyrus is born. God is naming him by name. That, that should stand out as extremely remarkable to you, uh, as it did Cyrus uh, when he conquers Babylon and then the Jewish scholars and priests show him this passage with his name written in it, uh, that he's so astounded that exactly what's recorded here uh, becomes his proclamation. Cyrus says, that's it. There's no other God in the world. This is the God that will be worshipped, the God of these people, and resultingly, these people are going to be set free. They can go back to their homeland, and they'll be able to rebuild their temple and rebuild their walls and their city based upon the fact that God had predicted his existence and his work uh, more than 150 years before he was re really even conceived. So, you know, it's a remarkable thing to have this type of experience. You know, you're my shepherd, shall perform all my pleasures, saying to Jerusalem, be built the temple, your foundation shall be laid. When you move right into chapter 45 and look at verse 1, thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have held, to subdue nations before him and to loose the armor of kings, to open before him the double doors so the gates will not be shut. Now, I'm just going to read this to you. The armories of the Medes and the Persians under Cyrus, uh, they conquered the city of Babylon in a remarkable raid that was described in Daniel chapter 5. So according to ancient historian Herodotus, uh, while King Belshazzar of Babylon held this massive party, and, and uh, this commentator uh, refers to it as a reckless party, and it really was uh, because... Uh, the Medo-Persian army is outside the Babylonian wall. And, you know, what does uh, Belshazzar decide to do? Have a very flamboyant party while there's an invading army outside your wall sieging your city. Uh, they had a very... It was more than cavalier. It really was flippant. They, they, they didn't give a hoot who was out there. They had a mindset that they were inconquerable. They had massive city walls that, according uh, to some historians, uh, most of the top of the city wall was, uh, you know, some places it was 80 feet thick, the top of the wall. Um, they had annual chariot races on top of the city wall. Four wide, the chariots would run. So, you know, invading army shows up, and you're like, so what? Don't care. 
massive city, all kinds of provision inside. Euphrates River runs under the wall, bringing us all the fresh water and fish and provision that we need. We're not concerned about this puny Medo-Persian empire outside our walls. What Cyrus does is he digs a trench upriver in the Euphrates from a swamp right to the riverbanks. And when they breach the riverbanks and open up the river, the whole of the Euphrates flows into the swamp. The, the river that goes underneath the Babylonian wall just drops. Gone. No more water source. And Cyrus and the Medo-Persian Empire wade. There's still water, but they just slog their way through right underneath the wall. Uh, they come to a first set of gates. Uh, which is wide open, and they come to the second set of gates, and they're closed but unlocked. So they just push through. So when the Lord is here 150 years before Cyrus's birth, not only predicting Cyrus, but telling us how these things will take place, the specific elements of how he's going to conquer these people, you got to consider, uh, you know, the authority of God's word in that process. Uh, I, I have pointed it out to us endlessly. Isaiah chapter 41, beginning at verse 21, God puts the challenge forward to all of the false gods and anyone who would rely upon them. And the statement he puts forward is, tell us about the future. You're a God. Go ahead. Tell us anything that's going to take place, that we could fear and worry and be concerned about your authority. And you can't, he says, you're worthless, all of you. You have nothing, because God is outside of time. He puts the authority of his credentials upon prophecy. Now, he puts some qualifying remarks on that, particularly in the book of Deuteronomy. He says, if you find others who can tell you of these things, but they lead you astray, then you need to stone them to death. He's speaking to the nation of Israel. If there are those that have certain capabilities, but they're not 100% accurate, don't listen to them. God's prophets, his servants that he refers to at you know chapter 44, they are going to constantly be accurate. You know, I, I don't know why it is um, Edward Casey gets brought up a lot. He was really inaccurate as far as a psychic goes. Uh, his predictions were less than 20% accurate. Um, you know, and that was if you sort of squint you know, when, when uh, you hear and understand certain things that he predicted. If you interpret it certain ways, then maybe you could give him you know, a 20%. You know, Nostradamus, that's another one. Everybody gets all hung up. Oh, you know, he's in the newspaper. You see him again. He's on the Inquirer. There were some really weird things about Nostradamus along the way that would make you perhaps be fascinated with him. But in the end, he was less than 30% accurate. So why listen to him? Right? I mean, if you're, uh, you know, coming to me and saying, uh, give me directions to your house. And I say, okay. 
take this road and that road and follow these directions. And after so many miles, you'll be at my house. And then as we part ways, I say, by the way, those directions are only 30% accurate. You'd be like, why'd you even tell me? I mean, 30% doesn't account for enough. For, why would I even leave my driveway? It doesn't, that makes no sense at all. You're going to navigate your way from here to eternity based upon somebody that's less than 30% accurate? I say throw Nostradamus away and any lichen, okay? It doesn't matter. You know, here's, you know, most of what he predicted I would put under the category of novelty, okay? Uh, Nostradamus, uh, two drunken individuals some years after he had, Nostradamus had passed away, made the decision that they were going to dig his grave up. And uh, for whatever reason, they dug his grave up. Uh, what was most astonishing to both of them was that when they opened up his casket, he had a stone tablet in his grasp with that day's date on it. So when he was buried, he requested that a tablet with this specific date be put as though he knew the day he was going to be dug up. Yeah, that's fantastic. Wow. So what? You know what I'm saying? I mean, what are you going to do with that type of information? You're going to go and now base your life upon predictions and things that were said by this man? You know, uh, for instance, he predicted the fall and collapse and the attack on the world towers but he predicted it was going to take place in 1984. Okay, He predicted Adolf Hitler, truly, even naming him. I don't know if you're aware of that, but his pronunciation was slightly off. He, he pronounced his name as Histler, not Hitler. Okay, You can almost hear the devilish serpent tongue that was whispering to this man's mind. Right? Hitler, not Hitler. God's servants are going to be accurate. Right? You know, what the Lord just told us about, you know, his servants and those that will listen to them. The Lord is going to frustrate, verse, you know, chapter 44, verse 25, the signs of the babblers, drive the diviners mad. Who turns wise men backwards and makes their knowledge foolishness? Who confirms the words of his servant and performs the counsel of his messengers? You know the things that the Lord lays on the heart of his prophets, such as the name of Cyrus and the work that he's going to perform. Those are the things that should stand out to us and cause us to cling to God's word. So, chapter 45, verse 2, I will go before you, speaking of Cyrus, still, and make the crooked places straight. I will break in pieces the gates of bronze and cut the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and hidden riches of secret places, that you may know that I, the Lord, who call you by your name, am the God of Israel." When Cyrus walked through the nearly empty riverbed of the Euphrates, 
he went through the corridors of the palace because no guards were really on duty. There were guards, but none of them was on the ready. Literally turn around, and there's a large contingency of the Medo-Persian army suddenly face-to-face -face with you. You're inside the palace as about, but you just lay down your sword. He walked straight into the banquet hall where uh, Belshazzar is having his party. Any of you that have read the scripture and know and understand you know, what's being said in Daniel chapter 5, uh, they have mocked God, the Babylonians and Belshazzar, and they've called for the articles of worship from the house of God in Jerusalem that they went there and raided when they stole all of the Hebrew people as slaves. And now they're drinking themselves drunk out of the bowls and the goblets that were supposed to be used in the worship of God. And suddenly a hand appears and starts writing on the wall. In thin air, there's now a hand hovering in the room writing on the wall. And... In English, it basically means um, your day of judgment is here because you've been placed in the scales and weighed and you've come up lacking. As he is literally wetting himself and his knees are shaking over the fact that a hand just appeared and wrote on the wall, Cyrus walks into the room. 150 years before this man's birth, God knew how the whole thing was going to unfold. And he recorded it for us here so that we could trust his word. To the point, I forget, right? The neat stuff, wow, you look at that. And that's a, to the point that when he's telling me, I need to love my wife as Christ loved the church. And really all I want to do is be incredibly selfish. I can look back at this and say, God's word is trustworthy. And I can die to myself in this moment. I don't want to. <laughs> you know. But I have read. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So I'm going to rely upon Christ in this moment. Because I've read in his word the things that cause me to understand. He is trustworthy in all things. He's outside of time and space. He's outside the human state of existence. He'll tell me things about stuff I need to do, just like he does you when you're reading his word. And there it is, staring you in the face, and you're thinking, darn it, I don't know how I'm ever going to pull that off. And the Lord says, well, I'll lend you my Holy Spirit. And you can rely upon my strength. And that's how we walk through this. Knowing and understanding God's word and trusting it for the strength to guide us. So, called him by name, I'm the God of Israel. For Jacob, my servant's sake, and Israel, my elect, I have even called you by your name. I have named you, though you've not known me. Listen, this isn't so you'll be wowed, Cyrus. This isn't so everyone else looking on can go, my goodness, God is so powerful. This is so that it will benefit my people. That's what he's saying. This, this whole thing is for my people. Great you're along for the ride. Appreciate your cooperation, 
Cyrus or whoever you might be. But in the end, it's to benefit his church. It's to benefit believers. You know, the church, Gentile church, isn't in existence yet, but the body of believers is benefited by this. You know, the Lord will move mountains in order to accomplish his word. Though you haven't known me, you're my servant. I am the Lord. There's no other. There is no God beside me. I will gird you, though you have not known me, that they may know that the rising of the sun to its setting, there is none besides me. I am the Lord. There is no other. I form the light. I create darkness. I make peace and create calamity. I, the Lord, do all these things. You know, the omnipotence of God, the sovereignty of God. There's not others. There's not lesser gods. There's not the God of the Muslims. There's not the God of Buddhism. There's not the God of Hinduism. There is no other God except for the God of the Scripture. There's only one God. The farther our culture drifts away from this, the more confused it gets on every subject. It doesn't have any idea. You know, it, it's because of the rejection. I just having this conversation last night with guys who they this group had never examined before why we've deteriorated as a nation. And in the discussion, you know, this is they're, they're going at it from a non-Christian point of view. They're going at it. From a secular point of view, I think it was more when this circumstance, I think it was more around this time period, I think it was more around this, more around that. And I said, well, my perception is a little different. I see the early 1900s and we come out of the Civil War, and in my opinion, we don't give God the credit that was due for saving this nation. And we begin to enjoy the prosperity of the early 1900s and the Industrial Revolution, and by the 1920s, they even refer to it as the Roaring Twenties, as everybody's just partying it up. Yeah. And then we find ourselves in a Great Depression, the end of the 30s. And quite honestly, it was nothing more than greed that created that. The most powerful men in the world all of them, from Rockefeller to Vanderbilt to Carnegie to J.P. Morgan, monopolies were not illegal at the time. And they were just grabbing all they could and pulling it into themselves. When the American economy is completely dependent upon a single organization's success, when that organization fails, so does our economy. People panic and do weird things, and we have to learn very powerful lessons. And our nation collapses financially. And the Lord recovers us, and it's a slow process. And we come out of that just as dumb as we ever were. Because what's looming on our doorstep is a threat for the whole world. World War II and Adolf Hitler. And as we move into World War II, we try to stick our head in the sand and stay out of the fight. Pearl Harbor brings us into that fight. But in the midst of the whole thing, history forgets. Winston Churchill, understanding that he almost lost everything. All of his troops were on the English Channel, Dunkirk, no ability to get them off. 
And they go to the communities, Great Britain collectively, and say, please take your pleasure craft <laughs> and sail across the English Channel and retrieve all the soldiers you get. 130,000 soldiers. Brought back by civilians, mostly. Under fire, some of the time, from Germans. And when they get those soldiers back in Germany, uh, excuse me, in England, and Winston Churchill understands the desperation of how effectively Adolf Hitler has swept through Germany, uh, swept through Europe. Winston Churchill asks the whole world, and this is what is not recorded in history the way it should be. It is recorded in history, just not the way it should be. He asks the whole world to join him in a day of prayer and fasting. And the whole world does. Praying to Jesus Christ and going without food and water for a whole day. The whole world prays and fasts. And what's most remarkable is Adolf Hitler loses his mind that day. Brilliant, brilliant commander-in-chief. Brilliant military tactician. Brilliant generals working under him. And his plan is so perfect, that's why they've just swept through Europe. And England's been left holding the bag going, what in the world just happened? As Germany has taken over everything. Adolf Hitler literally goes mad and calls all of his generals back to Germany. They're making the greatest progress in military history. And he says, stop where you are and come back to Berlin. And they come back to Berlin and sit down with the Fuhrer and all that Adolf Hitler wants to discuss with them is, what's wrong? Why are we being so successful? Literally. That's his discussion. This is a trap. It's too easy. We're winning on every front. No one opposes us. How can this possibly be? And his generals are just like, this is the greatest plan that's ever existed. That's why we're winning. And he deliberates over it until they've lost the upper hand of timing and surprise. D-Day as the fog rolls in ahead of our ships, just ahead of our ships, blanketing our ships for invasion. And as that first wave lands and the fog falls behind them so that the second wave can come in. And World War II is a sweeping victory. And we pat ourselves on the back and we don't thank God. And we move into the incredible prosperity of the 50s. As no one's giving God credit. The whole world could be speaking German or Japanese right now, you guys. God saved us from that tyranny and from that idolatry. And the world, America particularly, didn't give credit where credit was due. And I don't think it's so much that God punished us as it was more like God just saying, okay, that's the way I want it. Do your own thing. 1945, you consider all that transpires from 45 to 1965. And think about the moral condition of this nation in 1965 as the hippie generation comes and this whole nation rejects God to the degree that it finally stands up and says we no longer want God 
taught to our children in schools. You've got to get the Bible and prayer out of here. 1963. 1963, we kicked God, or at least public prayer, out of the public school system from 1963 to 1973. We have a 500% increase in violent crime in America. And by 1973, from 63 to 73, we decide, yeah, it's a good idea to start using abortion as birth control. And we immediately start killing, you know, 1.2, 1.6 million children in a, a year. Right, right now, um, depending on whose numbers you listen to, we're at like <clears throat> 68 million children that have been aborted since 1973. Okay, uh, how about this, you guys? Um, the American Retirement Plan, right? You're hearing people right now say, oh, well, um, the American Retirement Plan is no longer viable, you know, Social Security the way it was, because uh, we've been dipping into that fund and taking money out of that uh, forever, and so therefore we've depleted it. Okay, well, just so we're clear, you can do your own research on this. That's a total lie. Because the system was designed so that the current generation would be paying the retirement of the previous generation. That's the system was designed that way. Okay, it was never that I'm paying in and that money's being stored up, and then when I retire, I get that money back. It's see, there there was that first generation where nobody had paid in, and suddenly. You know, now there's a retiring generation that's experienced. So the, the working generation right then has to pay those that are retiring right then. So from the beginning, they're borrowing from the workforce to pay to the retirees. What's going on is right now there's 68 million people not in the workforce. We've vacuumed them out of our nation's population through abortion. Add to that, when we created the Social Security system, the average family home size was five and a half children per family. Right now, we're, we're at 1.2 children per family. You know, that, that's, that is, you, we've talked about this endlessly. You've got to have a, a, a 2.1 birth rate in order to stay the same. You figure in the death ratio, every every two human beings needs to result in two human beings in order for the populations to stay the same. You want any increase, you've got to rise above 2.1 in order to do that. Any nation that's dropped below uh, 1.8 never recovers. 1.6 is impossible to recover from or anything lower than that. We have rejected God's plan for family, for the world around us. And as a result, we're suffering miserably. You know, God has continuously been trying to reach out to us. And he continues to even right now. There's one God pursuing any other thing as God. Or even if you're not thinking that it's a God, if you're just thinking, no, I'm more interested in education and career and money than I am God. And 
I don't hate God. I don't reject God. I'm just more interested in success. Okay, well, just so we're clear, that's the worship of the intellect. You, you, you are worshiping your mind and its ability to reason and logic or money and power. The rejection of God results in horrible things. God alone is proving himself out right here. In verse 8, he says, Rain down, you heavens, from above, and let the skies pour down righteousness. Let the earth open and let them bring forth salvation. Let the righteous spring up together. I, the Lord, have created it. You know, that command for the coming day where Jesus Christ as the creator of all things, is going to return to this earth and rule as king. Now, when he does that, you're going to see things happen on earth that have never happened before. There's going to be a fruitfulness, and there's going to be righteousness, according to the scripture, that fills the earth like the oceans. You know, It's going to just be overwhelming. And righteousness, goodness, salvation, they're going to spring up together. It is a day your heart should long for when Jesus Christ creates a paradise on earth where there's no concern. Haven't things changed really rapidly, you guys, in our lifetime? You know, I just, my wife and I were reflecting on it again. I've, I don't, I'm not trying to be nostalgic, but like, you know, there was a rule when I was a child we lived in a pretty big, pretty big neighborhood, and um, I could I could not go into um, someone else's house if their parents were not home. That was a rule, and I'm talking like if my mother found out you had gone into somebody's house when their parents were not home, just your life was over. You did, there was going to be physical punishment. And you were going to lose all kinds of privileges and access to things. And, uh, you know, it just was not done. You didn't go into somebody else's house when their parents were not home. We could go anywhere in the neighborhood, you know. And uh, we were obligated that if trouble started, we were supposed to leave and uh, not be involved with that. And I'm talking like I was seven, eight, nine years old and just like explained these things. You know, when the street lights come on, you got to be back in this yard. Not, not, don't, listen, don't let it be that the lights have come on and you're now coming back into the yard. Like when those lights come on, you better already be in the yard. You know, so she put it on us to, to pay attention to daylight and time and get ourselves home. I would never let my children or grandchildren just roam the neighborhood free today. Not happening. You know what I'm saying? There aren't going to be rules about don't look when you're down the road. You can't go into anybody's house unless their parents are home. You know, the rules now are like if you see their parents run away. You know, I mean, it's just, you know what I'm saying? It's just, it's a totally different world than it was when I was a kid. Which was, you know, like a thousand years ago. But, you know, just the things that are happening right now, you know, uh, molestation rate of children, uh, some say it's one in three. Okay. 
solid studies without question, without contradiction, are one in four. Okay. One, think about this. One out of every children that you, one out of every four children that you know is going to be molested before they're an adult. One out of every four. That's frightening when you have, you know, I currently have five grandkids. Makes me angry that that's the statistic. You know, John, Dr. James Thompson and many other leading Christian advisors say uh, overnight sleepovers for your children and anyone else's house should be over. That that our culture has shifted so much that is a thing you should not do with your children anymore. Your children should not go to anyone else's house and spend the night. And 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 uh, when questioned about that, wasn't the parents? It was the children they're going to be around that are going to introduce them to things that are sinful. They have they have such ready access to so many things, and we're not just talking about internet pornography. They have ready access to so many things that they're now saying shouldn't shouldn't happen at all. Your children should be under your supervision and shouldn't be sent. You know, used to be they'd say, you know, before you do that, you have to really know the people, the parents, the adults of that household. Now they're saying, no, there's no way to know because of the conduct of the children that they're going to be around. This is the world that we're, it'll be a wonderful thing to have Jesus Christ rule on this planet and cleanse all of that junk out fruitfulness and life and love yeah but just no fear you know when you're reading and the prophet's telling us that the lion or it actually says the wolf is going to lie down with the lamb and that they're both going to eat straw you know the greater picture is you know the child is going to be able to play with a venomous snake and not be destroyed there will not be the threat that's currently in the world the curse of sin and death will be contended with by Jesus Christ. What a wonderful thing. Rain down your heavens from above. Let the skies pour down righteousness. Let the earth open. Let them bring forth salvation. Let righteousness spring up together. I, the Lord, have created it. Amen. Praise God. What a wonderful thing to look forward to. Uh, 45.9, woe to him who strives with his maker. So as he goes through this, that's just sort of the summary of this little section is why in the world would you try to fight with God? Why in the world would you, once you've come to the realization of his existence, why are you resisting him? Why is there not a cooperation and a submission uh, to him? Woe to him who strives with his maker. Let the pot shard strive with the pot shards of the earth. Shall the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or shall the handiwork say, who has no hands? Woe to him who says to his father, what are you begetting? Or to the woman, what have you brought forth? You know, the the child, the clay vessel, questioning the one who's made them is the idea. It's it's arrogant. It's it's ridiculous. You know, the 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 child would ever question the father in this way. It's it's absurd, comical, you know, fantasy to think 
that, you know, the broken pot that the potter has made would then, in its fragmented form, say to the potter, what have you done to me? Look at, look at the condition that I'm in. Uh, humanity does this a lot. It blames God for its current state and conditions. You know, whatever we find ourselves in, whatever condition we find ourselves in, you know, we need to thank the Lord for his great mercies and what he's given us. We're alive. You know, look around at the people around us who have so much more suffering. Look at the, the world around us and realize how wealthy we are and prosperous and well off. You know, here, I'll never forget uh, K.P. Buchanan years ago talking about how, you know, upon leaving India to go pursue his studies and work of ministry, at 18 years old, he received his first pair of shoes. You know, how many pair do I currently have? You know what I'm saying? I've got like muck boots and these boots and two pairs of sneakers and two pairs of dress shoes and I've got an old set of sneakers that I mow the lawn in and paint in. You know, I mean it's just like shoes, like things we take for granted. Great blessings that the Lord has bestowed upon us in the way that He's given. Whatever condition we find ourselves in, why why do I complain? Why do I complain? Why do I raise my voice against God? You know, you can just pray for me. I know you guys are way more mature than that. But it's the human struggle I have. God is so good to us. Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, and His Maker, ask me of things to come concerning my sons and concerning the work of my hands. You command me. I have made the earth, created man on it. I, my hands, stretched out the heavens. And all their hosts I have commanded. You know, I have stretched out the heavens with my hands. I'm always astonished by the, the way the scripture describes that. You know, uh, the way he measured out the universe uh, with the span of his hand. You know, literally make the universe about that big. You know, you start considering how big the universe is. You know, I don't know if you read it this week. Uh, Fox News, big to do amongst the scientific community. They found an all-new, previously unknown black hole 35,000 light years away. Okay, I got to tell you, I just laugh when I read those headlines. You're 35,000 light years away and you know you found this thing? I think you discovered something you've never seen before and decided that's what it is. Honestly. You would have to travel at the speed of light for 35,000 years to get there. <laughs> then you've got to turn around and do the same thing to come all the way back here and tell us about it. And you've looked through a telescope, which honestly sends back a lot of radio signal. Not those perfectly clear pictures we've all seen. Right, that's that's done in Photoshop. I'm not exaggerating. You can look it up on your own. Those beautiful nebulous clouds that the Hubble telescope has seen—that's not real. 
you know, what it mostly sees is very clear black and white images and radio impulses that it interprets. You know, how do you know you found, you know, a planet that's rotating around a sun? Well, as we look at that sun 35,000 light years away, we see periodically in regular intervals, there's a blip where the light goes out. That must be where the planet is passing in front of that sun and blocking our sun, you know, blocking our view from it. So it's that rotation. So now we know what's going on. No, you don't. You know what I'm saying? Uh, what you know is happening is the light you're currently staring at is blinking. That's it. It's 35,000 light years away. Until you get there and you look at it and come back, please don't try to tell us what you've seen. Most of what, and people really freak out when you say this, most of what NASA is engaged in is spying. I'm not like a conspiracy theory guy. They're launching, maintaining, interpreting, reading information from satellites that are looking at the Earth. Most of what they're doing is looking at the Earth, not at space. Right? But because we venerate knowledge and wisdom so far above God, all you got to do is show us a few, you know, doctored photographs. And we go, sure. Take the tax money and pay for NASA again this year. When most of what they're doing is telecommunications and spying on, you know, they're part of the government. They're working for the government. Any of you guys that have studied this, like why is the private sector having such a hard time getting into the space industry? You know, why are Elon Musk and all of his buddies that are figuring out how to launch rockets, why aren't they being allowed to do the same work as NASA because you've got to become part of the government in order to participate in any of their programs. We've, we've seen that all along the way, right? Lockheed Martin, any organization that starts building aircraft or spacecraft for the government essentially becomes part of the government. Everybody that works for you is going to have top secret clearance. Everything you're working on is now classified, you know, NASA, all of its wisdom, God, is so massive that when he made the universe, he measured it with the span of his hand. Man gets all caught up in himself and his own understanding and his own wisdom, and we're like a bunch of kids on the playground who are just arguing with one another about who's better, who's bigger, who's you know going to be the authority in this current play that we're all putting on. You know, having had the school here, watching children interact like that, you learn a lot of things. And you look around at human behavior and you think, well, not much has changed. And you read the apostles and they're arguing with Jesus about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. And you go, oh, this is the human condition. This is who we are. God exceeds all things. And, and what we get ourselves captured into is basically the same condition that Satan was in to say, I'm going to exalt myself above your throne. That's what the human race is doing. Rejecting God when he is exceeding all of us, to say the least. Verse 14, or no, we, we left off. So, um, my hand stretched out the heavens, all the hosts that I command, I raised uh, him up in righteousness, and I will direct all his ways. 
He will build my city and let my exiles go free, uh, not for price nor reward, says the Lord of hosts. And isn't that like so amazing that God would say of Cyrus, um, he's going to let my people go and he's not, there isn't even going to be a cost to it. You know, this, this man that the Lord is raising up and using in this way um, isn't going to demand anything in order to let these people go. That's unheard of in human history. All throughout human history, whenever a nation conquers another nation, if, if or when any freedom comes, then those people have to pay for their freedom. And in this case, uh, you know, uh, once Cyrus makes this declaration, there are a few things that transpire. But in the end, uh, the nation of Israel is just granted its freedom and allowed to return to its homeland, build its temple. And then any of you that have studied your way through Nehemiah know that it gets so um, God orchestrated that, uh, you know, the king of Babylon is writing letters of authority for Nehemiah and his men saying, nope, these guys can harvest whatever they need to out of, uh, you know, the, the royal forests. They're allowed to incorporate, you know, whatever labor they need to. They're not to be interfered with. They're getting letters of recommendation and passage from uh, the, the world leaders and nobody gets to interfere with them, right? You know, uh, the Shnechereb is trying to, uh, to create fear in their hearts. And they're able to build. Not only are they going to go, they're going to go without price or reward. You're not going to have to pay. God is going to, and quite the opposite, they were rewarded and uh, returned to the land. And thus says the Lord, the labor of Egypt and merchandise of Cush and of the sand beans, men of stature, shall come over to you. They shall be yours. They shall walk behind you. They shall come over in chains, and they shall bow down to you. They will make supplication to you, saying, Surely God is in you, and there is no other God. There is no other God. Uh, this statement about the labor of Egyptians, uh, the merchandise of Cush, the sand beans, uh, men of stature, it's the idea that um, you've been the prisoners and the slaves of particularly Babylon, but essentially the whole world. And God is saying, I'm going to turn the tables so that the greatest men in the world today are going to come and they're going to have a reverence. You know, this walking behind you is the idea like um, they would never try to outpace you or get in front of you or compete with you. They're going to physically take a position of being behind you, supporting you, following you, learning from you. So, you know, think about this, you guys. Here's this nation, right? This is being written about Cyrus, like I said, 150 years before he's even born. They've been reading this by the time Cyrus arrives for almost 200 years as a nation. And, and and they've been slaves through the process. If you were reading this as a completely demoralized, completely uh, imprisoned, you know, forced labor, terrible condition, if you're reading 
oh, these great men of the earth, they're going to come and walk behind me. They're going to be in chains, not me. They're going to bow down uh, to me. They're going to make supplication to me, saying, surely God is in you. There's no. When you're in those terrible moments of struggle and you hear a promise like this from God, your heart can almost doubt God to the point where you would, whether you ever say it with your mouth, in your heart, in your mind, and through our behavior, we're accusing God of being a liar. If he puts forth the promise like that, that seems completely contradictory to our current circumstances, and we're saying to God and of God, yeah, 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 but that's not going to happen for me. I mean, happen for you, it's happened for other people, but I hear what you're saying, these promises of God and these assurances, but I don't see those things as unfolding for me. You're calling God a liar. I'm calling God a liar when we behave like that. This was the great controversy, God. Well, you brought us out here into the desert. They're saying you wanted to kill us. You know, God is saying to the nation of Israel, I could have killed you in Egypt. In fact, I went through a process of killing a whole bunch of people in Egypt in order to free you from Egypt. And now that we're out here in the wilderness, what are you saying about me? You're, you're saying I'm an unjust father of this nation of Israel. You're saying that I'm not trustworthy. You're saying that I'm, in fact, murderous. That was the accusation that they brought against him. And he was enraged. God was outraged. With that, be careful of your heart and how it responds. Right? We can, right, like Mary, right? She she had questions when she was told, you're going to have a child. She basically raises her hand and says, how is that going to happen since I've never had intimate relations with a man? And she's told by the angel, God is going to cause you to be pregnant. Okay, let it. I mean, I'm not being smug. She literally says, let it be to me as you have said. Now, if you think, if you think, oh, that quaint Mary, she's so, what a good girl. Let me, as a teenage girl, suddenly be pregnant in a community that stones people to death for being pregnant outside marriage. And let me have to explain to Joseph that I'm now pregnant, even though he and I have not been yet. When that young woman says, let it be unto me as you have said, she's stepping right into the trouble. Here, these people are reading this for hundreds of years. Their heart is so broken, they doubt the things that God is saying. My encouragement to you this evening is, Take the time to hear what God is saying to you. Slow down long enough to see whether he's actually saying it and then learn how to trust it. Because when we doubt, right? Doubt is the antithesis of faith. It's the enemy of faith. It's the Doubt is the destroyer of faith. Consider what the Lord is saying here. Truly you are God, who hide yourself, O God of Israel, the Savior. They shall be ashamed and also disgraced, all of them. They shall go in confusion together, who are makers of idols. 
but Israel shall be saved by the Lord with an everlasting salvation. You shall not be ashamed or disgraced forever and ever. The people who put their trust in other things will be ashamed. I, uh, I guess I can talk about it now. I had an interesting interview with a company that uh, they run a big a nationwide rehabilitation program, drug rehabilitation program. Because of my work with criminals and jails and drug addicts uh, over the years and my current work with CRD and Hancock County Jail, this company wanted me to apply. So I applied to this company, and that's always dicey. You know, I'm in a faith-based ministry of drug addiction and recovery, and now I'm talking to secular, you know, world-based. And uh, I just was very blunt about my faith with them, explaining what's going on. What I was startled with is the woman saying, I hope you understand that in this program, we're not opposed to drug use by our clients. And I was like, okay, um, that seems really weird, but like, surely you're going to explain that. Oh, yeah. So her explanation is, um, we provide, it's, it's not methadone or suboxone that they provide, but it's generic brands of methadone. And so, but those are brand names, okay, for heroin substitutes. But this company is providing the, you know, knockoff version. And they're making huge money doing it. So what they are for, it's not Suboxone, but we'll just call it that. It's, it's a methadone or a Suboxone clinic is what it is. And every patient that comes in and is signed up with them and gets daily doses, they make money off of. So for me as a counselor being there, my job was going to be, if they had hired me, that I would just encourage these people if they ever wanted to find true sobriety without drugs, I could give them advice as to how to do that. But presently, all they want me to do inside this rehab company is help these people get connected with resources for their day-to-day -day life. That's it. So um, if they're, if I know that they're using cocaine and marijuana and drinking alcohol, as long as they're not using heroin, I mean, she's telling me this flat out, as long as they're not using heroin, even if they're using all those drugs and our Suboxone, that's fine. That's totally fine. Your job, if I got hired by them, was to just give them day-to-day -day advice as to how to live. So, like, I'm like, what does that mean? Because my, my advice is get sober. You know what I'm saying? Uh, their advice is where to catch the city bus. How to get connected with programs for food stamps. Where they can go to get counseling uh, for, you know, attention deficit disorder or post-traumatic stress disorder. So my job as a counselor is to just plug them into other resources that will make money off from their addiction. 
and to make sure I'm doing everything I can to keep them in this organization where this company is making a lot of money off in every one of them. That sounds exactly like what I've always wanted to do. I was angry when I left there. I lost my nephew to heroin addiction, man. Raised that young man as my own son and lost him to heroin addiction. I'm not interested in being, you know, their wisdom is going to seem stupid, God is saying. You're going to sit down. You're going to talk to them. They're going to, you know, be confused. They're going to be these makers of idols. I'm going to provide you with salvation, right? He who the Son has set free is free indeed. That's my job. That's your job. It isn't to play, you know, cutesy with people and help them stay in the thing that's destroying their lives. The Lord says, who created the heavens, who is God, who formed the earth and made it, who has established it, who did not create it in vain. Now look, I know sometimes I go way too far with the rabbit trails. Forgive me, because I do it in an effort that you'd have these tools, these weapons, ready for the fight, ready for the work, you need to be equipped. This statement, uh, God did not create the earth in vain. The term is void, vain. God did not create the earth void. This is where the gap theorists Take us back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 and verse 2, where it says, and the earth became void. They say, oh, see, God right here, it says, did not create the earth void. So something must have caused the earth to become void. So therefore, that must have been where Lucifer was cast out of heaven and came to the earth right in the middle of creation and disrupted all of creation. And that is where all of these ancient fossils come from because God was in the middle of creating and then Satan interfered with creation, making it void, confused. And then millions of years or an undefined period of time passed where, for instance, all the dinosaurs died out. And God, recognizing, I'm making all of this up. This is what the gap theorists believe. God, deciding that it had gone far enough and he needed to get rid of that, wiped out the planet and its occupants with a small, localized flood, killing all of those angels and creatures. And that's where all the fossil record of the world came from was this Luciferian, you know, Lucifer's name, this Luciferian flood that took place during this gap, which isn't recorded in the scripture. It's promoting evolution. It's promoting millions of years. It's denouncing creation. It's denouncing the word of God. It sounds smart. It's not at all. Okay. When it says in Genesis, the earth became void, you can translate it that way, became. You can insert that in there. It's the worst possible Hebrew translation of that text, 
right? It should, just in the plain understanding, read, and the earth was void, meaning empty. God's in the middle of creating. He builds a big section of creation, but it's without definition yet. And then from there, he moves on. If you pick up Genesis and you just read it the way it's written, your mind doesn't go, hey, there's a gap right there. Your mind doesn't do that at all. Your mind doesn't create some evolutionary gap when you're reading the natural context of the Scripture. Men who really wanted to embrace evolution and the ungodly pseudoscience of evolution, you know, they wanted to embrace that. They grabbed a hold of these few verses, reinterpret them, cram them together, and then say to everybody, see, this is the evidence we have right here. Here's the deal, you guys. It's as simple as this. You got your Bible in your hand. You're reading through it. And you come across something that you don't like. You don't have the authority or the privilege to just say, I don't like that, and just rip it right out of your Bible and burn it. You don't get to do that. Because the Bible is not yours. You didn't author it, and you don't have authority over it. Only God gets to do that. To say what's included or what's not included. In fact, he puts the warning out so harsh. He says twice in the scripture, if you take away from my word, I'm going to take your name away from the book of life. That should make the hair stand right up on the back of your neck. If you add to my word, I'm going to add to you the plagues that are written in it. I'm not interested in either one of those things. I'm not interested in that for anyone I know experiencing that. Don't add to the word of God or take away from the word of God. This gap theory that's promoted that's just Christians caving in to the social pressure of what is falsely called science. I mean, I hope you understand this, right? <clears throat> I guess it would be wrong to say we worship science. We do not worship science. Uh, I hope we all understand our God, our God, created science. All of it. We worship the God of science. We're not unscientific. You get the impression from Dil, Bill Nye and all of you know the people like that that to be Christian is to be non-scientific. Nothing could be farther from the truth, right? Henry Morris, dual PhDs in hydrology, part of the Creation Research Institute in San Diego, California, one of the largest bodies of scientists in the world, studying creation from a scientific point of view. God's wisdom. This issue of, you know, it being vain doesn't lend anything to creation. Read it again. He formed the earth and made it, who has established it, who did not create it in vain, who formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord. There's no other. I have not spoken in secret in a dark place of the earth. I did not say to the seed of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak righteousness. I declare things that are right. I, this isn't hidden. I didn't do this in secret or in the dark. Plain, out in the open, recorded, written down. This is the best way to verify whether somebody's telling the truth or not. Written word. Right? If it's left to conversation, that can be reinterpreted. People's recall can be inaccurate. Right? 
think we've all played telephone when we were kids, right? Somebody tells the secret and it goes around, and by the time it comes back, it's all a peanut butter sandwiches. It has nothing to do with what was said when it went out. Write it down, hand the message on. That's what the Lord did. That's why the Dead Sea Scrolls are so important. Compare what we have with what was written thousands of years ago, and they're the same. God didn't say to Jacob, Israel, seek me, but you're never going to find me. Right? Jesus said, seek and you will find, knock, it will be open. God will answer your questions. You know, this issue of the gap theory, if you need one verse to disprove it, I know we've gone long here, but let me just give you this Romans chapter 5, verse 12. It says, therefore, just as through one man's sin entered the world, death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all sinned. Adam brought death into the world. According to the gap theorists, right, the Luciferian flood, that says death was here on earth before Adam. All of those dinosaurs, all of those peoples, and all of those angels, they all died before Adam was created, according to the gap theorists. So, according to the gap theorists, the Bible's wrong. Because the Bible just told us that sin and death entered this world through Adam. The gap theorists say, no, it was here before Adam. Just in case you're wondering, they're wrong. The scripture is correct. Many other proof texts, but keep Romans 5.12 for yourself. 45.20, assemble yourselves and come, draw near together. You have escaped from the nations, and they have no knowledge. Carry the wood of their carved images. You know, these idolaters, they have no knowledge, is what God is saying. And pray to a God that cannot save, tell and bring forth your case. Yes, let them take counsel together. Who has declared this from ancient times? Who has told you from time past? Have not I, the Lord? There's no other God beside me. A just God and Savior. There is none besides me. Who's told you about the future? No one. Me. Me alone is what God is saying. And that's the evidence that I'm God and there's no other. The ability to be outside time and tell you about the past and the future with perfect accuracy. 45.22, look at me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. For I am God, there's no other. I have sworn by myself. The word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return that to, my every, to me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall take an oath. He shall say surely in the Lord, I have righteousness and strength. What a doctrinal statement that is. Surely in the Lord I have righteousness and strength. Outside of the Lord I have no righteousness and I have no strength. All of it is within him. To him men shall come and all shall be ashamed who are incensed against him. In the Lord all the descendants of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. I, um, I did not know... The NFL players, I'm not a big follower of the NFL, but a number of years ago, I was uh, in the airport. Uh, where was I? Was Dulles? I can't remember. Uh, Newark. And um, I, don't, I don't know what it was about my emotion at the moment, but 
I, maybe I was feeling kind of full of myself or something, and I turned around, and there were three men standing behind, behind me that they had backs to, to me, and each of them was as wide as a house. They were giants. They, they were huge, huge, like nearly seven foot tall. Their shoulders were like four feet across massive giants giants standing in the airport that will humble you when you know what i'm saying when you're just like i don't know what you know just cruise around your every day and you suddenly realize how meaningless you are you're suddenly standing in the presence of someone that could probably reach over and pick you up by the head you know, these are massive individuals. And, you know, learned moments later they were members of a football team, part of the NFL. These guys are giants. You know, this whole statement that the Lord closes this out with of the idea of let them run their mouth. When they stand in front of me, their, their mouths are going to be shut. You know, you think you're something else until you stand in the presence of a giant. You think you're something else. So you stand in the presence of God. We probably, you know, heard people. Maybe we've even been people who have said, you know, I stand in front of God. I got a thing or two I want to say to him. No, you really don't. You know, right here, right now, you know, you think you're hot stuff and maybe you will. Uh, you stand in front of God, there's not going to be any argument. This is, it's an important closure to this thing, you guys. Because people don't have the proper reverence for God in ancient history or today. Fear. You know, a lot of people today in the church don't like that. Oh, let's not preach fear. Really? I mean, you're going to stand alone in front of your Creator someday and be judged. Number one, based upon whether you've accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior or not. And then number two, based upon the things you've done. If, if you have accepted Jesus Christ, then you basically get a pass, but then your whole life is burned up. And what was done for the Lord will be given to you as reward. And what was not done for the Lord will just be incinerated in the moment. That should cause you to have a very great reverence for God, the judge of all things. You know, as you read through this chapter and you understand how powerful a man Cyrus is, what God is saying is no matter how big or how powerful you are, you're going to someday stand in front of me. And that's what you want to have your heart ready for, is submission. Submission to God. I pray that's where each one of us is at, ready to bow our hearts, to bow our knees before the Lord. Amen? Amen. Let's stand and we'll pray. We'll pick up at chapter 46 next week. Father, I thank you for your love and your work in our lives. I pray. I pray you bless my brothers and sisters here this evening for their patience where we've gone long. Minister to us. Cause us to absorb this message and to live by it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.